What's up, friends? Welcome back to the new Evangelicals podcast. Great to be with you on the show. If you're new here, welcome. So cool. My name is Tim. I'm the host of the show. We do a lot of um, different things here. So if you subscribe to the podcast, you might see different episodes covering all different topics and even formats. And this episode is an interview with Dr. Jonathan Foster. He has a book that is out now. It is called A Theology of Consent. Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. I'm going to tell you right now, this is a very unique episode because we spend a lot of time unpacking what is mimetic theory, and then we talk about open and relational theology, and then we talk about how that is combined in Jonathan's book for the first time ever and how he sees God now. We also talk a lot about his personal journey, and it gets... It frankly gets very personal very quick, and you'll understand why once you listen. But this was a really, for me, eye-opening episode of just ways to think about God outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. As always, if you like the show and you want to subscribe, feel free. You can do it on the podcast app you're listening to this on, or you can do it on YouTube. If you want to support the work that we do, because we are completely crowdfunded, you can hit on the donate link in our show notes and you can donate there. We are a registered nonprofit, which means all donations are 100% tax deductible. By the way, if you want to join us for a live podcast extravaganza, you should do that. We're going to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee, December 16th. It's going to be me, Noah, our producer, Mad Priest Coffee, and April Joy, who's a great um, TikToker and Instagram person who makes hilarious evangelical content. We're going to talk about a lot of things, including the fact that April dated an actual member from the power team. Don't ask me how. We're going to find out. You can get tickets at the link in our show notes. It's going to be a great time. And by the way, if you can't make the event, which if you can make it, you should, you can actually watch the event live. We're going to be live streaming it. So you can watch it right in the comfort of your own home. Tickets are at the link in our bio for all of that. I hope to meet you. I love meeting people from this community. I love shaking hands. I just love talking to folks. It just, it's so encouraging. And also it reminds me of why we do this work. We do it to hold space for folks marginalized by the evangelical church. And we just do our best to do that. So if you're here because of that, thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for engaging on social media, for being part of our Facebook community. And I hope to see you out at our live podcast event, December 16th with me, Mike from Mad Priest Coffee, Noah, our producer, and April Joy. And also you can meet new friends, meet new people who you Need to meet because I hear this all the time. I just want friends. Well, great. Come out to this event, meet some friends. Let's do it. It'll be a great time. Um, that being said, friends, I don't have much more to say. Uh, wow, I don't have much more to say on this episode. I'm gonna hop right into it because this interview is something else. So buckle up, listen closely. Here we go. Talk to you all next time. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a hard time picking up and reading a Bible because your faith tradition ruined it for you, but you want to approach the Bible in a fresh way? Bibliotheca is a Bible that invites you to engage with the text in a totally different way, the way its ancient readers would have experienced it. Unlike a typical reference Bible that looks and feels like a dictionary, these books look and feel like inviting literature. You get five cloth-bound volumes, no chapters or verse numbers, no cross-references, no notes. Bibliotheca is currently taking pre-orders for another print run, and if you order now, you'll get special early bird pricing, and guess what? Big news. Your purchase will support TNE, that's us, as well. Use the code TNE22 when you check out, and $20 of every pre-ordered set will go toward the work that we do here at TNE. That is a win-win. 
Again, visit bibliotheca.co or check the link in our show notes and be sure to use the code TNE22 when you check out. Thanks. Dr. Jonathan Foster, it is good to have you with us. Now, the audience doesn't know this, but they're going to know it now because we're going to tell them. We actually started recording an episode, I think a week ago, and I think like six minutes in, and by the way, thank God that it was only six minutes in, I lost power. We had some storms come through, my power goes out, and and there goes our interview. So um, we're not going to be thwarted, though, by the deep state trying to sabotage nope. this episode. So we're, re- we're, we're recording again. So it's great to have you back again for the second time. Thank you. And it's not the first time that people have abruptly left my presence when I was trying to talk to them about mimetic theory or open relational theology. So it's all good. (laughs) Well, we are definitely going to dig into a lot of that. Before we do, of course, as we always like to ask all of our guests, can you kind of give us some background on how you got from elementary school, uh, Jonathan, to, hey, I wrote a book called, I'm going to read out the title, A Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. So, all right, give me like that nutshell version from point A to point B. How did we get here? That is a, such a crazy question. You know, <laughs> my, my daughter, my daughter in Grace, she teaches second grade at the school that uh, she went to school when she was younger. Wow. And so when you mentioned grade school, I'm like, my grade school would have never, they would not allow me to come back and teach anything uh, <laughs> given my experience there or junior high or college. Um, I was never really into academics. Um, I just was too immature and sanguine and had other things going on. But so Sounds like many, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so many challenging things kept happening to me uh, over the years. And I've been a church planner, a pastor, and I've always been into reading and, and trying to think deeply about things and care deeply about trying to make, help people make meaning out of you know, tragedy and difficult mm. things in life. And I just kept going through stuff, uh, one thing after another, that uh, required me, if I was going to engage with life intellect- with an intellectually honest you know, perspective, it really required me to just continue to dig deeper. And my old system, as good as a lot of my upbringing was and a lot of the things that I experienced in evangelical world, because there were a lot of good things, it didn't give me a foundation that was flexible enough to uh, really seriously interact with some of these very difficult things that I was going through. So I just kept following the questions. Um, and I've, I've always kind of wanted to write. So I've been, I've been writing for the last six, seven years. And then a few years ago, my friend Tom Ward called me and said, we're doing this new doctoral program in open relational theology. And the more we talked about it, I was like, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to just take mimetic theory and smash it into open relational theology and see, you know, what, what happens. And so that's really what I've been doing the last uh, three years. So that's a terrible summary, but that's, th- there, there you go. Now we're well, that, that's why I exist as the host to help unpack some of that summary. Yes. And we're definitely going to dive yes. into, of course, mimetic theory and open and relational, you know, uh, theology and how that works and what that even is, because it sounds interesting. And we're going to dig into that, but really quick, you, you mentioned that, that you were a church planner 
and a pasture. Um, I'm not asking for details. You don't have to give them, but were they in more like uh, like uh, assemblies of God type of denominations, more charismatic, more conservative leading? Like, like where in the evangelical space were you when you were doing that work? Yeah, so my entire background's with the Church of the Nazarene. So oh, okay. some connection with assemblies in in part of the theology, but um, but it just kind of probably like a lot of denominations and a lot of associations. It really depends geographically where you're at in the world so it the nazarenes bless their hearts um you know just kind of a interesting mix of people and so some of them are still you know they don't even realize it pretty fundamentalist and and actually calvinist even though they're a westland denomination Mm. um and then others of them are more progressive and um and you know think think differently so to answer your question yeah it was church of the nazarene uh, that was that's pretty much been my entire background. My both my granddads were Nazarene pastors. My dad was a Nazarene pastor, and so when the denomination uninvited me from the tribe uh, three years ago, that was a that was a watershed moment uh, for us. Okay, pump the brakes. Um, mm-hmm. So you said that you were, and tell me if I'm mishearing what you said. But what I heard you say is, hey, I was a part of this denomination. I was planting churches with them. I was a pastor ordained through them. And then they revoked it all and said, sorry, no more room here for you. Is that the case? Yes, sir. You heard correctly. You are doing your host job correctly. And was was this over uh, just like your theological journey where it was like, hey, you know what? I, I'm saying things from the pulpit that maybe the church, the Nazarene got wind of and was like, hey, Jonathan. You're, 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 you're too far gone for our boundaries. Was it, Hey, we have no funding and uh, you're first on the chopping block. Like what, what was some of, of what kind of, what, what, what made that happen? Well, to be clear, there was never much funding to begin with. So <laughs> okay. sounds like church planting. That's that, right. That's about right. That That's not the issue or it's always the issue. Um, right. Okay. So the, the flashpoint thing came yeah. over LGBTQ stuff. I didn't want to assume. Okay. I didn't. <laughs> Dang it. All right, go ahead. I'm listening. Dang it. So that's that's kind of you know, that was the fulcrum for them that that allowed them to <laughs> leverage everything and move me out. Um, leading up to that, you know, really it's a deeper theological thing. And probably in my uh perspective, it's it's really more about penal substitutionary atonement stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really more about mm-hmm. I I finally so I'll tr- I'll try to briefly just tell the story because I know we have a lot to talk about, but it's yeah, also sure. it also plays into all my other stuff. Hundred um, uh, percent. Seven years ago, 2015, we just went through this massive loss in our life. Our, our oldest child uh, was killed suddenly in a car wreck. Whoa! And so um, we were about a year year and a half into our most recent church plant, and um, you know, as you can imagine, it was it was extremely difficult. Among other things, I was trying to essentially, as a pastor, interpret, you know, part of what you do as a pastor is you you help people make meaning out of challenging things. Yeah. And so here I was trying to do that for lots of folks in our church, but also obviously for me and my own family. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if I did it right, well, good or not. And I don't know if it was even best for me to stay in the position, but, you know, we were living life in real time. and. And sure. trying to, you know, just trying to figure out what to do. And I, I did have a sense of responsibility in terms of my two boys and lots of my daughter's friends and college students that were at the church also, nephews and nieces and such also 
to try to really engage with this thing. Like what, like, what does it really mean? Yeah. The problem is my system that had given me answers previously, you know, couldn't support some of the new stuff. I was pulling at the thread and the thread was kind of unraveling a lot mm. of the system. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make meaning, but my meaning making system is actually kind of crumbling underneath me. And I wasn't, I, I personally wasn't panicking about that part. I was leaning into, cause I, I really felt like, and I still do feel like I was just following love and mm. uh, following this deeply omnipresent connectedness I felt with God in the midst of it all. But where that led me, and it, this does connect with Girard and Mimesis is, so it was 2015 when I personally, I was basically asking the question in so many words, you know, like, why did my kid have to die? Which the more I sat with that, the more I, it kept leading me back to the question of why did Jesus have to die? And it's mm -hmm. a bit embarrassing to say that I hadn't really decided for myself, well, not that not that we all, anyone knows exactly all that went on at the crucifixion. Sure. But uh, it's a bit embarrassing to say that I hadn't really decided what I thought about all of that. Except I do think it speaks to, oh, the space that evangelical world can give you. Like, you know, as long as you can take an offering and, you know, be semi-charismatic and, and kind of work through some of the scripture, then you don't have to be overly learned or anything. So... Um, I'm, I'm kind of working through that. And that's somehow I landed on Rene Girard that year and with some other reading that I was doing. And then I began to realize, well, I began to decide what I thought the reason Jesus had to die. The reason Jesus died is because we killed him. Mm. Like that was it for me. And then the scapegoating mechanism that Girard lines out gives me a really good scaffold to understand why we felt like we had to kill him. And so... That really, for me, was the thing that was probably, it, it's not too dramatic to say, it's probably the most important decision I think I've ever made. Because once I've kind of crossed over that threshold, um, it's like going across the continental divide. Every, you know, everything else goes the other direction. And so I started, uh, even, if, even though it's subtle, it's incredibly dramatic. I started thinking in terms of, uh, I don't think God needs to scapegoat anyone, uh, least of all his son. And then I thought, a couple months later, I'm like, well, who are we scapegoating now? Of course, mm. there's no shortage there. But in right. my world, LGBTQ plus human beings are, are right at the top of the list. And so I just slowly started changing my approach. And then at some point, fast forward, I officially asked her denomination to change their posture. And basically, I didn't have new answers, but say, could we at least say, I don't know? <laughs> could we at least just create a space? And so they real quickly said, uh, and I'll never forget the first conversation I had with them. The first question they asked me was, are you in or are you out? Wow. I said, time out. I'm in. I've been in my whole life. Right. <laughs> right. Good standing. You know, I went to the schools. I went to the seminaries. Right. Uh, my, my, my family name is relatively well known. Not trying to get out. But that just uh, gives you foreshadowing of where it went. And uh, so Easter week of 2019, um, they they officially said I'm, said I'm out. And at that point, um, it was absurd, ridiculous. I, I name it as evil and wrong, but I'm also strangely like really grateful for the whole process and um, proud to have tried to stand up for people who have no voice. So, Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, 
you and I, in a lot of ways, have very different stories uh, in, in many, many ways. But that that overlap of you know just asking the question to your church or denomination, can we at least ponder this seriously, right? Um, is was one of the things, uh, probably the main thing that really got me kicked out of my own church uh, a couple of years. Uh, well, it'll be two years ago in uh, in April of 2023. Um, and at, at the time, I wasn't even fully affirming. I would say I was more inclusive. We're like, hey, maybe we we disagree theologically on this, but they should, you know, still have inclusivity here, right? Yeah. And uh, just talking about that um, under under the new evangelicals' name on my account while I was serving at that church, uh, put them in a spot where they sat me down and said, you know, hey, either you you keep serving here as a drummer uh, or you stop doing the work of of TNE. And I said, well, I I gotta go. And like you just said, I would also now categorize it as wrong, harmful. Etc. Um, but in a way, like you said as well, I'm kind of grateful for it because it kind of gave me room to really be honest about, about what I was really thinking without the worry of of you know um, being rebuked or you know causing more controversy in my church, etc. And now here I am, you know, post a year, I'm doing this work full time, and it's such an easy decision to think about, even though it costs me, like I'm sure it costs you, friends, family relationships, et cetera. So that part of the story, I think a lot of folks that are listening to this have some version of that, that they go, yeah, I, uh, I know that feeling and it's really shitty. <laughs> it's a really mm-hmm. shitty feeling, but mm-hmm. also can lead to some kind of liberative way of living in a, in a weird, strange way. It's a paradox, isn't it? It's strange, but it, but it's true. It's terrible, but it's also really yes. beautiful. So yes, so I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that story. Yeah. All right. So that's really helpful to kind of know. So, you know, you, you obviously you you've you've experienced probably the worst you know part of, of human existence possible with 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 the loss of 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 your daughter. Um, I'm assuming that experience had to be one of the major points that made you have to say, yeah, maybe evangelicalism has even given me answers, but these answers are no longer sufficient. For, for for what I'm actually going through as a human being, right? And so through a lot of twists and turns, you 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 lose your church, et cetera. How did you discover and and we'll we're gonna break down these terms. So audience, don't worry, we're gonna get to the breakdown. But how did you discover mimetic theory and then relational theology? And then we'll define them, then we'll talk about kind of how you merge them. Like like what introduced you to these ideas? Yeah, so like I said, and that would have been 2015 when I first got introduced to René Girard. Uh, Girard is a French uh, intellectual. He's something of a polymath. His thinking covers a lot of different areas. So mm-hmm. you'll find anthropologists, you'll find certainly people in psychoanalytics, um, in philosophy, in theology, uh, anthropology, all these things that his insights will speak into. So I don't remember exactly. It might have been a Brian Zond um, conversation. I'm not. I'm not sure. But mm. I landed on Girard, and I, it just started making sense to me. I've always kind of been interested in the psychological reasons why, you know, um, that motivated group to act the way that they do, and motivated me to to act the way that I do. Mm. So that was super, super helpful, and it continues to be. It's been seven years of that, and as any uh, Girardian will tell you, um, you know, th- there's there's so much stuff here that you could. I, I'm going to be excavating for the rest of my life, and then I think. And, and just know, to be clear, yeah, Renee is the person who introduced you to mimetic theory. Is that correct? That's right. So okay. Renee Girard is the author of what's called uh, mimetic theory. Um, 
and uh, it's a super helpful way to kind of see how we've organized our world. Okay, got it. And then open a relational. Uh, it's funny because Tom Ord, mm. um, who some people will know, he's the one who co- coined open a relational. It kind of comes out of process theology. And I, I hate to even say process theology because for some folks, when they hear process, it's like anathema and, you know, they, they boo and hiss. And that's what I, uh, how people reacted around me growing up over the years. So, um, but open and relational definitely has its roots in process theology. Tom Ward is, is a Nazarene. He's still a Nazarene. None of us can figure out how that's possible, but, uh, <laughs> but, but more power to him. Um, and so he and I have had similar backgrounds and we got to know each other a bit a few years ago and I started reading some of his stuff and I realized that it's really helpful to think in terms of the cosmos being a relational, interactive, mm. interconnected cosmos. So it made sense. Uh, mimetic theory and open and relational theology are two different perspectives. They are not coming, they're not trying to answer the same questions. So mm. they are dramatically different as far as Tom and I know. Um, there's been no like official anywhere where people have tried to bring these two really interesting concepts together because they're, they're answering different questions. They're coming from different perspectives and also open relational is relatively new. Well, mimetic theory is relatively new. Well, in terms of, uh, as well, in terms of like longstanding kind of theological and philosophical approaches. Mm. So, so it's kind of, it's a new thing. All right, that's helpful. By the way, I'm I'm fairly sure that that Thomas Ord is in my inbox somewhere. I think I was supposed to schedule him for an interview and I forgot, which oh, is probably a big miss on my part. But, <laughs> uh, so I'll have to make sure I schedule that because I, I I've heard the name a few times because I've interacted with Trip Fuller um, uh, oh, yeah. quite often, yeah. um, and uh, you know he's a big process theologian and yada yada yada. So mm-hmm. okay, so let's let's start kind of breaking down and 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 keep in mind the people you're talking to, mainly me here. Okay, like <laughs> this is just not our world. These are very new ideas and concepts sure. for us. How would you break down and, and, and give to the average Joe Schmo, right? Um, hey, mimetic theory can be best understood as, what is it? Okay. Absolutely. I would love to. And you and your listeners are going to love this. I'm ready. Trust me. Um, it's not really a, a linear thing, but I'll try to lay it out in somewhat of a linear fashion mm-hmm. to help us kind of get our mind around it. Right. Um, it, I usually say there's like five key components and I'll just say it real quick and then we'll go back and unpack them. Uh, There's desire that leads to imitation that leads to conflict that leads to scapegoating. And then the fifth piece is the ritualization of all of it. So desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating, and ritualization. Got it. Written down. Nice. Um, So all of this is built upon desire. Um, Girard comes out of, a philosophical and psychoanalytical, a little bit background, maybe similar if anyone's listening to that's familiar with something like Hegel or Lacan or Freud, that essentially says, Girard doesn't necessarily say it this way, but I'll say it this way, that they're, that they're really, that we are, we're lacking subjects, like we're really aware of our own insecurities. Uh, mm-hmm. We have, there, there's a common denominator that seems to be true about all of us humans. And that's that we're, we're pretty aware of our own shortcomings, mm. um, of our own, you know, fallenness maybe, or um, s- stuff that we're not particularly happy about ourselves. And so 
in the midst of that, we kind of grow up. This 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 happens at a really young age. I mean, like literally, as as we are growing up, we are formed by desires, but um, in concert with the fact that we're aware of our own lack, we're also intensely aware of what the other person desires. So I don't know what I want. I really can only kind of discern what other people seem to want. Hmm. I don't know that I want a tattoo until I see your cool tattoos that you're wearing. And then I'm like, oh, Tim seems like he's kind of put together. I'm deeply aware of my own lack. I should probably get some tats as well or whatever. Right. It, you know, it's tats. It's, it's jeans. It's a car. It's a beer. It's mm. a diploma. It's the guy. It's the girl. Those objects are arbitrary. It really doesn't matter. What what matters is the way that my model, in this case, the way I've set it up, I'm the subject, you're the model. What matters is what my model presents to me. And so my desire, uh, as Gerard would say, becomes uh, mediated by the desires of my model. So I see what you want. This is true with all of the marketing in our culture. Right. The car commercial doesn't tell you what kind of car you want to drive. They tell you what kind of car your model wants to drive. Right. And your model is almost always, if not always, just a little bit better looking than you, <laughs> a little bit more affluent, you know, got just got their life put together just a little bit more. So marketers, unfortunately, know about this really well. Hmm. So we have desire that leads to the second piece, which is now the imitation. So now I'm imitating what my model wants. Right. Strangely, so, so my model is a subject too. So my model begins to notice the attention I give to whatever it is that I'm trying to, let's say it's a, a car. Uh, so, so the model becomes a subject and sees my attention I give to the car. Now they want the car even more. Because they are also a lacking subject. And so they're assuming I'm put together. So they got to have that object. Well, mm. what, what happens is we drive the value, obviously, of the car, of the jeans, of the degree, of the tats, whatever it is. We drive the value of all of that up while each of us are trying to grab for this thing that I think it's safe to say the reason we're trying to do it is to fill our own lack you know, mm. our own kind of insecurity. All right. You doing good so far? I think so. Yeah. Cool. So I'm fast forwarding through stuff, but it's desire that leads to imitation. And what Gerard says is that eventually this back and forth imitation um, will introduce some kind of conflict, um, some type of antagonistic feelings that we have toward each other and our community. Cause we always pull our community into this. It's never just a one-on-one -on -one thing. You know, it's a relational mm cosmos here mm. so um there's always a, a larger community that's pulled in whether it's a church you know whether it's politics whether it's country whether it's your college sports you know football team there's always a community the community gets agitated uh probably lots of different reasons why we could break that down but what happens next is probably gerard's most famous piece of this mm. so gerard discovered or uncovered, I think is a better way of saying it, by reading um, the great novelists of our world, Dostoevsky and Proust and, and Camus and Shakespeare and, and on and on and on. He discovered that these novelists had this really interesting insight into 
um, desire and imitation that was happening in people's lives. And then he began to see the same thing in archaeology and anthropology. And then eventually we can get to this. He sees the same thing in the Bible. Um, but it's this idea that as we, as the imitation grows and we get closer and closer to physical conflict and, and fighting, we're like creeping to the edge of chaos, basically. Now, sometimes, as we all know, humans do go over the edge and, and there's problems. Right. But a lot of times what Gerard says is that humanity has designed this ingenious way to deal with our antagonism. That's at the, at the precipice. We're pointing our finger at each other. And for a variety of different reasons, most of them are subconscious and not entirely, it's not a formalized process. But we decided at the last minute to turn and point our finger at someone else. And so if you and I are in conflict, somehow we decide to unify and turn and point our finger to someone else and say, oh, you know what? It's actually not you. It's this person's problem. Hmm. And so we, we scapegoat, uh, which is, I talk about it like we offload, we try to offload all of our psycho-spiritual drama onto the back of someone else. And then we get rid of them. We lynch them. We throw them in the volcano. We push them in the gas oven. Uh, we murder them on a cross. Um, we sabotage them in social media. We don't sit next to them at the lunchroom. The list is endless. Our scapegoating uh, strategy, it's just endless the way we do this. So uh, there's a hundred different things I could say here. So I, I can right. just pause at this point and let you ask questions. But that's the first part, desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating. Okay. So let me repeat this back to you in my own language. And let's see yes. how, if, if well, I'm even see. in the ballpark here. Let's see it. So desire that we can see modeled leads to imitation, meaning I want that tattoo. I want that car. You know, this is, I'm putting it in physical terms, right? Yeah. I want the new iPhone. Right, because yep. look at this ad that Apple does so well. I want to be that hiker who does look a little bit better than me, a little more athletic and can jog a little bit longer. Therefore, I need it. At some point, this concept will lead to a conflict between uh, people or groups. And at some point, either that group will potentially have an actual conflict like a war or something, or they will find a third party to look at it and say, actually, the problem isn't you or me, it's this other person and or group. And so let's just blame them for those problems that you and I are having or me or our, my group and your group is happening. Let's unify and say, this person's the problem. Yep. How'd I do? That's basically it. And when, when we do that, there's so much power in this. It's so effective. This is why we keep doing it. Like it's unanimity. It's we're in unity. But Gerard says it's always minus one. So it's, it's unanimity minus one person or one mm. group. So someone's always got to be out. And it becomes the way that we manage our own anger, violence, conflict, antagonism, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Can I throw a real curveball at you? Please. This, I mean, audience, this might be a real curveball. He might say, Tim, this is dumb. Let's just move on. And then I'll <laughs> edit this out. Yada, yada, yada. But can there be such, well, first let me ask you this. Can there be such a thing as, as healthy scapegoating? There could be such a thing as 
pausing and reflecting upon people that are in your life that are unhealthy that you would not need to associate with. Um, I don't, but in terms of scapegoating itself, uh, no, it is a intrinsically negative, unhealthy. Okay, well, maybe Move. this maybe this question will be so dumb and so stupid. You could just tell me, Tim, this is a bad idea. But I, I, I've heard this idea. I forgot where I heard it from a while ago. That 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 one of the and one of the genius moves about our sporting culture, okay, so mm-hmm. it actually lets people who would be in conflict let their teams battle it out. And then I'm thinking about like football, right? Right now, as we're recording this, you know, I live by Philadelphia. It's Eagles season. Whenever the Eagles do bad against the opposing team, talk sports talk radio does not scapegoat the opposing team. They scapegoat their own team for being shitty players, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's been a I, I've heard from again I forgot where it's from, but the concept was hey, instead of leading to violence, people settle this between cities and nations and whatever on the sporting field. It's actually a very helpful thing for humanity. That's kind of where I was thinking about like oh, that's a good that, point. That's what you think about like, about like, like the scapegoat idea and if it could ever be applied in a way that actually reduces human violence by saying actually our team sucks, we're going to blame our team for for this decision and not go attack the neighboring town for. For you know, for for beating us. I mean, again, maybe it's yeah. a bad analogy, but that's no. kind of what I was thinking about. No, it's not a bad analogy, and you're on to um, you're on to some good stuff. You just went next level on a few things. Here. You just oh, jumped. Yeah, next you level. Just, you did you just jumped a few steps? Um, <laughs> My bad. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's not linear, like I said, and it it kind of comes in at from a variety of different angles. Uh, I would say you two things. Number one, yes, there is a to a degree, there is something that is going on with uh, sports like that that I, I do think can be helpful. So one of the reasons that it seems like we return to scapegoating again and again and again is yeah. because it works in that it helps us manage our, um, I'll just say antagonism. It sure. helps us manage our antagonism. And so it becomes an outlet for us. Of course, this is it's healthy. It's good for everyone except the person who is actually being scapegoated. You know that right. person is right. a problem. The Eagles do, do, do. They do not feel good after the whole town tells them, "Boo, you guys suck." You know, it's not a good feeling for anyone. No, right. But sports in general, I do think, can serve a really healthy outlet. I think, especially, you know, I've got a boy who plays college football. I, I played ball and sports. I think are really helpful. Um, I don't want to point out the masculinity necessarily part of it but i do think in our culture it's hard to know what to do with this you know competitive aggression sometimes right it's a lot of fun i mean football itself it's a it's a fun game man i mean mm. there's nowhere else in life you get to run full blast and just run into people it's so <laughs> much stinking fun so i mean it's also really painful and dangerous <laughs> but it's a lot of fun sure um i think there's something really helpful about all that and i think in a playful kind of if we hold it loosely yeah, that the, that the Eagles hate the Cowboys and the Commanders and whoever else is in the division now can't even keep up. Um, Giants, Giants, yeah. I think all of that could be fun. The problem, a a problem is we're humans and we turn into fanatics pretty quickly. And then you started to talk about like even talk show radio. Like to me, that starts to be a little bit different because these guys and gals. Um, and they're, they're try- it's their job, and, and some of it is good. I mean, it's journalism. But so often in, whether it's politics or sports or whatever we're hearing from the media, so often when, once you see scapegoating, you realize 
this is a big part of what's going on here. And, and I, I'm, I'm concerned. Is that the right word? Yeah, I'm suspicious. That's a better word. That yeah. it's leading certain people down a path that may not be healthy at some point. Um, but yeah, that's that's very much a part of it. Uh, we okay. love scapegoating in, in sports. Absolutely. Okay, but but in but I mean, I think it's safe to say that you know that's maybe an exception to the rule of you know scapegoating usually leads to some very harmful things. Right? You mentioned like you know. Uh, uh, just our own human history for violence and churning our attention towards other people groups. Sail into summer in New Jersey, where sea breezes drift along iconic sunny shores, stroll boardwalks, or soar high on the rides. Take time out to breathe in the great outdoors. Treat yourself, shop, dine, dive into history, the arts, and culture. From dazzling winning cities to charming towns in the countryside. Find it all at visitnj.org. So, okay, so so we have these these four components that I, I hope to be laid out decently for the audience to grasp. And then we have this other word that uh, ritual, ritualization, <laughs> if yeah, I can even say yeah, it. So, sure. so all this leads to becoming ritualistic as, as yeah. a society or as a human species. Unpack that for us. What do you mean? Because when I yeah. think of ritual, my mind immediately jumps to religious, but in some of my travels and studies, I've realized that ritual is just kind of the nature of what humans do in general. So unpack that for us. Yes. And, and of course, the listeners need to be reminded that really, as they get confused, they just, they're going to have to pick up the book. It's going to help them mm. work through it all. But yeah, um, so I'll back up just a couple steps first and, and just remind us that the reason we're in this desire, imitation, conflict, and scapegoating is because scapegoating works. It provides a way for us to manage our antagonism, and it provides a sense of order, um, strangely enough. Now, the, the order never really lasts because what you're doing is you're doing damage to the scapegoat, which, uh, you know, sooner or later, is gonna, it's just going to come back to haunt you. Mm. But for the, for the ruling class, for the mm. people in power, for the people who are calling the shots, it does help them create some kind of order and a system and it does give them some place for their violence to go because and i need to say this too in part when you're when you're offloading your crap onto someone else you're kind you're now you're justified in getting rid of them you're justified in punishing them in part because in a psychoanalytic way um you're seeing your problems in them and it's probably true to say that none of us are more irritated or frustrated than when we see our own junk in other people. Mm. We may not even recognize it as our own. It may be on an unconscious level, but it really encourages us, I think, to uh, really punish that person. So we really feel justified in, get rid of, in getting rid of them. Mm. Um, and so it works. And there's this sense of peace, but it's just a peace that it doesn't, it doesn't last. I remember taking a group of guys to the Southeast a couple of years ago. We took a trip down to Montgomery to the, I always forget the name of the places, but there, there are two relatively new museums dedicated to the lynching of, um, of all the African-Americans in the country. This beautifully, I mean, obviously terribly hard um, environments, but done really, really well. I think mm. international, no, national justice piece of something, people can look it up. I remember reading through some old, 
looking at microfish, reading some old Atlanta newspapers. And I've kicked myself ever since that I didn't take a picture of it with my phone. But the, the journalist, this was in the late 1800s, was describing the scene at, uh, at a lynching and how the whole thing was, um, well, there was a bit of ritual to it to, to kind of foreshadow where we're going. But also, um, once the event took place, he said something like that there was a, probably the best word is catharsis. I don't think he used that word, but he said there was something like a spirit that swept through the crowd. And all their animosity and all their anger was just was gone in, in a matter of a few moments once this um, African-American was killed. And so it's obviously horrible, but it's, it's explaining the, the type of peace that can come over a crowd when these things happen. And so, so we do it because it works. Okay, so then what happens is it, it works, but it never lasts. You know, conflict always builds back up. Mm. And so when conflict reintroduces itself to the point of creeping back to the edge of chaos, uh, what Gerard says is basically we just reenact the whole thing. We rinse and repeat. We rinse and repeat. And we may not say it formally, but informally, we're basically saying, oh, I remember what happened last time. We were able to manage all this problem by scapegoating these people. So we'll do it again. We'll add, you know, something to our liturgy, we'll pray a different prayer or we'll sing a different song, but we're just going to do the same thing. We're going to ramp it all up again. And then it works again. Um, and so that it, it's out of that ritualization process that Gerard says religion is actually born, which this part is super troubling and fascinating. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about how religion inspires violence, yeah. which I think that, that there's some truth to that. But if you understand what Gerard is saying, it actually doesn't go deep enough. He's actually saying violence is what inspires religion. Mm. Because we never dealt with our antagonism, antagonism, our sense of lack, our anger and our violence at the beginning, we have just scapegoated, scapegoated, scapegoated. We've ritualized this process to the point now where um, we've created religion and all of it has emanated, it's emerged out of our deep sense of lack of peace with ourselves. So that's, that's where religion comes from. So religion comes from mm. violence. So really, Gerard says that sacrifice is the cornerstone of our, of our culture. At the expense of other human beings, like, like you yeah. so rightly pointed out. You know, whether yeah. it is Jesus on the cross or it is black bodies being lynched. There's yeah. a ruling class, there's a group of people in power who are, you know, whether they realize this or not, are in this ritual, right, cycle of, well, uh, the problem is this person, this people group, and if we eradicate them, our problems go away, which yep. obviously leads to more violence, clearly, yep. you know, like whether they see yep. it or not, and invites more chaos on the world. Of course, again, at the expense of really marginalized people groups is what I hear you saying. Um, exactly. Often and often. Okay. So again, we could really park here for the next hour going through <laughs> yeah. more of this. We actually are here to talk about your book that kind of merges this concept yeah, with open and relational theology. Can you give us just a quick crash course? Uh, you know, my understanding is the idea that uh, I'm going to, I always mispronounce her name. Is it um, Ilya Delore or De Delio? Well, Delio, yeah. Delio, I've heard her talk about Delio. things like, you know, God unfolds with us, kind of like a scroll. Is that what open <laughs> relational theology is talking about? Or am I way off base here? I I'm the novice. So, Aaliyah Delio. 
Aaliyah Delio, yes. I think it's how you pronounce her name. If I ever meet her, I'm going to say, what is the dealio, Aaliyah Delio? <laughs> yeah, she's definitely a part of a larger uh, process, influenced, open and relational influenced world. Uh, she's really into Tehar de Chardin, who was a Jesuit, I think Jesuit, um, uh, mathematician, priest from the last century who is incredibly brilliant and uh, worth anyone's time reading. So I really love her stuff. I get to quote her a couple of times in, in my work. Mm. Um, so yeah, Crash Course with Open and Relational. Um, I usually start with the relational part because then okay. it helps me explain the open. It's essentially this idea that we live in a relational cosmos, that everything is interconnected from the smallest to the biggest, from the micro to the macro. Uh, scientifically, we've known this to be true for at least about 100 years. Since at least the theory of relativity and then quantum mechanics, we have become um, very aware that our world is not like we used to think it was, which is substance-based. We used to think it was about separate matter, you know, this material that we could uh, separate and pull apart. It's not. It's about the relationship between things. So like the power is not in the electron or the proton or the neutron. It's in the relationship between the three. And as we know, if you try to pull those apart, it's problematic. Mm. This is true at a very micro level. It's true with the largest things that we know. It's true with um, the earth. It's true with us. Everything is symbiotic. Um, you know, the, the trees get rid of oxygen, we breathe it and give carbon dioxide. You know, it's so symbiotic, it's ridiculous. The ocean and climate change and the soil and the earth and the animals, it just goes on and on and on. Right. So we live in a very interconnected cosmos. What open and relational theology says, so because so far this is not that controversial, what ORT says is that this is even true of God, that God is interconnected with us. So to really understand the divine, you have to get to know the world. And to really understand the world, you have to get to know the divine because they're symbiotic. Mm. Um, mm. They interact. Um, Al, Al Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, has this famous saying where he says, God is not the exception. God is the chief exemplification of what's going on. So in other words, God is not separate. So some people may already be ahead of me here. So God is not living outside of space and time. That God is very much interacting with us. And in the very process of responding to our prayers and interacting, there's ele in an elementary kind of a sense, there's a, there's a process of time. There's, there's like a request and then there's a response. And it's, it's just fundamental to being in relationship. You have one moment and then the next moment and the right. next moment. Right. Everything's relational, which leads to the open piece. And of course, there's a hundred things to unpack about the relational, but leading to the open piece, what that means then is if the divine is truly relational, what it suggests to me then is that the future is not settled. The future is still being played out because even God herself, if she's in a relationship with us, she doesn't exactly know how everything's going to go. It would be like 
if you're in a relationship where you get to control everything and you know how it's going to go, it's not even a real relationship. It's a, it's a fake relationship because you already know the next move. It would not require you to love. It would not require you to be vulnerable. It would not require you to trust. Um, you already know the buttons to push and the levers to pull. If the divine is truly relational, it leaves um, the future open so that she and us can interact and partner and step into it. And so that's where the open peace comes from. It's not a blueprint, God. Mm. It's not a God's got it all figured out before it ever happens, predetermined God. Um, it's, it's an open universe, which means this thing could still go a bunch of different directions. However, mm. God is still with us, irrespective, no matter what. Why, why did you use uh, she to describe God? Curious. Why not? Why not? I'm not, I'm not opposed. I'm just curious if there's a certain reason. I usually say they, um, That's but good too, yeah. um, I was just curious I, if there's any any reason in particular. Yeah, I, I, I switch it around. Sometimes I say they too. That she, makes sense. him, it, I don't know. I just, just trying to keep myself on my toes. Yes, no, for sure. Okay, so so there you go, audience. Two, at least on the surface, very different ways in, of thinking right. about the world. Um, right. One seems to be more applicable on like a wider spectrum of of of, mm-hmm. of how how human how humanity can can exist and function that's the medic theory and then you have this like theology of open and relational theology about, about about how we look at god how we view god um i'm sure again that i'm sure maybe in the world of, of theology that that's that's been applied differently but in the christian tradition certainly in its own unique way and you woke up one day and said you know what what the hell? Let's take a theory. Let's That's take true. some open and relational theory. Let's smash them together like Play-Doh, mix up the color and see what we get. So, so when you, what, what did you find? Like, how do you, how do you integrate these things together to create the view that you have of, of the world now? Yeah, that's a great question. That's right. I basically decided that these two things have helped me so much hmm. that I really wanted to get to know both of them better. And I was really curious about how they might interact because they both seem to be describing a nature of reality that's a little bit different at times, actually sometimes quite different. So I was just so stinking curious that I couldn't help myself. Um, And they are different. I say in the book that it's like trying to bring different genres of music together. It's like trying to put Chopin with Thelonious Monk. I, and I actually, not to be overly dramatic, I actually created a playlist uh, with Monk and Chopin and other kind of artists. And I actually thought about that, like, because they're so different. They're so weird. It's not even, you know, the same world sometimes. However, just like with music, uh, if you bring the music together, they may not be playing in the same key. Uh, they may not be even using the same, you know, time signature or anything. But there are a thing. There is a thing called inharmonics. I love inharmonics. You know, you strike a if 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 you open up a piano lid, you know, you bang on a note, and then you listen to the string vibrating. You'll hear all the different inharmonics. And so, a note is never just a note because we live in a relational cosmos. It's all the other notes that are connected to it. Mm-hmm. And so, I kept running into that with this. It was like, oh, that's really cool. I mean, Girard says it this way: Whitehead and Ord and Keller. And Caputo say it this way, well, it is kind of some of the same thing. So, uh, to begin to answer your question, what did I find? I think that was the question. Yep. Um, uh, the first thing is that it would just be a re-emphasis on the relational piece. Girardians don't use 
the the concept of a relational cosmos as much, but they use something very similar. They'll say something like, um, "We are we are um, formed in, as interdividuals, so we're not individuals; we're interdividuals." Mm. And so our desire, again, mediated by the other person, it's so, we are so entangled, we literally do not know what's ours and what's the other person's. Mm. This is obviously a very relational concept. Mm. Um, they both shared inharmonics for sure around sacrifice. I kind of intuited this from the very beginning. So both groups, they may not say it this way, but both groups would, would be very suspicious about attaching the concept of redemption to anything uh, connected to sacrifice. So sacrifice is not redemptive in and of itself, which um, before people just turn their backs on this, I, it made me, it made <laughs> me stop and really have to think through this because right, right. there is such a thing as we all know as good sacrifice, like altruistic um, Speaking of Aaliyah DeLeo, self-donative love, she will call it. So I had to wrestle with that. Um, right, because I do think about like that Bible verse, right? Like, like there's no greater love than the person who lays down his life for his friends, right? Like, I, I mean, that comes right to my evangelical mind right away that, yeah. well, is sacrifice always, you know, not good? Or if my wife and I want to watch a TV show. I sacrifice my preference for, of course, the better TV show so she can watch what she wants to watch. I mean, that, that would be a form of sacrifice, right? Yeah, it would be. Um, to be clear, Tim, that's probably not the same thing as God's sacrifice for us. And you I might don't know. not want to. <laughs> <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. I'm really suffering over here, you know? <laughs> you know what? If we want to take a minute and you go get your wife and bring her in here, we'll see what she says about that. <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, so this is a great question. So I'm glad we landed on this. This is the crux of so much of the stuff that I excavated because in my in my view now, I recognize that all of this has to do with consent, which is where the idea of theology of consent comes from. So um, hmm. the sacrifice that is forced upon you, that's required of you by the larger group, is not a sacrifice. I think that's redemptive. Um, I mean, it's helpful for the larger group, but it's never helpful for the one who is being uh, victimized, scapegoated, sacrificed. Right. But the sacrifice that one enters into consensually, I think, is what the entire cosmos revolves around, from the smallest to the largest. And I think that's even true of God. I think the truest thing I can say of God is that God is love and that the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. It feels weak, but I'm suspicious that the weakness of consent is stronger than the strength of power. It feels powerless. But what it does is it requires or invites me to reframe power relationally versus authoritatively, which is a, which is a different thing. You know, it's like the difference between uh, Thor and um, Dorothy Day. Like, who's stronger, Thor or Dorothy Day? Well, of course, you'd be like, well, it's Thor. Well, it depends on what kind of power we're talking about. You know, the kind of things that Dorothy Day talked about and lived for will be with us forever. Um, the physical authoritative power, it serves a purpose, but it's, it's here today, gone tomorrow. Mm. So consent, when you, when you fold that into sacrifice, it's a completely different thing. And this started to revolutionize the way I began to look at Jesus because I, it just helped corroborate my suspicion that Jesus 
didn't die in order to pay God off, that Jesus didn't die because God made him do so. Mm. Now, I know there are listeners who probably think that, and so I want to be respectful. Uh, and I'll just say for me, I can no longer hold to that view at all because, because a love that controls, to me, is just not a love. A love that dominates and forces, it, it's not love. It's something else. And well, can, so, can, can I pause that for one second? Because I, I think that's an important point. And, you know, you're, you're right. I don't know how many folks listen to our podcast would maybe hold that view of penal substitutionary atonement still. Um, but I think that there's a really important thing to think about because if, if this idea of domination and forcing, you know, is, is how we look at love, I, I, I don't, that wouldn't work with my own children. I would not be seen as right. a good parent by just dominating over them. Now there are certainly times I have a two year old where I have to put up some firm boundaries, you know, and, and help right. him. But as he gets older and he develops his own sense of inner being and wisdom, my parenting style will have to change from more of, hey, I have to give you something to work with from how do I help you make wise choices, right? And But if I was still, if, if, if I was dominating my son at 18 and just, you know, just doing all these things of just power and, and force, how could you call that love if it's rooted in fear from my son being scared of me, like, you know, harming him in some way, right? I don't think that would be a loving relationship. So why would we assume that that's how God operates, where if we don't, you know, say the prayer and say we're sorry, we're just going to be tossed into the eternal abyss and turned on fire forever because God is just, and therefore he also loves people who he didn't predestine to go to hell. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I think that, that that's an important thing to think about, even for folks who might listen and say, well, I still hold to this view. We're not saying you can't hold to that view, but understand that we have a hard time reconciling that view with, with the understanding of love that I would argue we see throughout the life of Jesus in the scriptures and also how we see love fleshed out in human-to-human relationships. Yeah, I think you said that very well, and, and that's true. Um, once you start to unpack the nuances of love and you dive into the complexity of it and you sit yeah. with it, you realize the role of consent, and a consensual mm-hmm. love to me is stronger than a non-consensual love. And so if an if a earthly parent is like that, how much more might our heavenly parent be like that? Right. Right. So, so th- there were common denominators around uh, sacrifice, and I get into it more in the book, but that was super, mm. that was meaningful, really helpful for me. So, okay. So, listen, I know we spent probably a good chunk of this kind of help, help really unpacking mimetic theory. I think that's important for the audience and really for myself because this is so new to me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a couple minutes left. I do want to kind of dig into like, so how do you see God now? So you have these understandings of these two different ways of thinking about the world uh, in their respective categories. Um, you know, how has, has, has uh, church planting Jonathan how has that Jonathan shifted from how he viewed God to how you see God now and how you interact with the world around you and how you see the, the, the divine working? Like, what does that look like in practice for you? Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is all of this over the last seven years, but in particular over the last three working on this project, Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thankful to say has helped me it's helped me develop a more non-anxious presence mm. in my life. Mm. And I'm really, really grateful for that. And I don't think I would trade that for anything. Yeah. Um, it seems that as love has grown, or maybe I should say as the interiority of who I am has grown uh, such that I could 
hold the tension of all that consent and love brings because it's not an easy fix. You know, sometimes, some days it would just be easier if I believed in a God that could just go boom, step out from space and time and, and fix it. it. It requires me to, it invites me to live in the tension. So as that interiority has grown, that's in the, and then I've been more and more capable of holding attention, I've just noticed um, less anxiety. When I interact with people now, I'm not, it's hilarious what I used to do when I was younger. When I would go out to eat uh, when I was younger, I would sit around and look at other people at the other tables and think, I wonder if there's a way I could present the gospel to them. I, I wonder if there's a way I could kind of sneak in mm. a conversation so that these people might be able to get saved so that they could, you know, or come to my church or, you know, not go to hell. I never, ever think that now. It's the complete opposite. It's like I look around when I'm, when I'm self-aware and aware of my surroundings because sometimes I'm not. But when I am, um, I'm like, this is, these people are beautiful. There's mm. so many problems. There's such a mess here. There, there's so many, you know, probably inconsistencies, but also God is with us. God is an omnipresent God with us, God. That piece of it has really changed for me. I'm no longer interested in omnipotent God, like capital O, omnipotent, power-loving, dominating, hierarchical, top-down, oh, by the way, masculine. Um, I'm really interested in the omnipresence of God. And I think if you, well, I'll speak for myself, the more I excavated omnipresence, the more it deconstructed omnipotence for me. The omnipotence part just no longer worked. So um, I still, I mean, we could talk about that. I still believe in omnipotence, but I have to frame it in a particular way. And it doesn't matter because I'm way more interested in omnipresence. Mm. God with us, in the one in whom we move and live and have our being, the one who's closer than a brother, the one who's close to the brokenhearted. Oh gosh, I feel like we should take an offering. Those are, those are, those are great things, man. Those yeah. are the things that I build my life on. Um, and it's affected me and really, and my wife and my boys and, and my loved ones in really deeply profound, uh, beautiful ways. Has this view um, helped you in your own, um, I don't think healing is the right word, but in your own journey of just, you know, um, you know, walking through, you know, serious tragedy and just trying to make more sense of what can appear so chaotic and random and unjust? Has, has this process really helped you just... Um, Again, I don't want to use the wrong words, uh, but just maybe cope sure. better or just, just have, yeah. have a, a better understanding or, or maybe more peace, if that's even the right word to use for you. How, yeah. how, how does that work? No, I appreciate the sensitivity of the way you asked the question. Um, yeah, it's, help, it's helped me tremendously on the process. You know, I don't think any of us are ever completely healed, but we're all healing right. from our things. Right. And for me, just probably because my personality makeup and who I am, um, and, and also partly being a pastor because I took seriously trying to figure out how to make sense of this for others. You know, I was either going to go one way, which would have been double down on my um, kind of binary black and white, uh, you know, God willed for this to happen. And right. therefore I got to pray more and I got to read my Bible more and give more. I've tried all that in, uh, in the past going through different things. And some of that's not bad, but um this this thing really caused me to go the other direction and to deal 
genuinely with randomness and chaos, which is also something I do in the book. We don't have time to talk about it today, but I began to see that there's a way to read the sacred text that that it's not God coming from somewhere else and dominating uh, material matter and, and that matter and disorder are necessarily evil. They might be, but rather it's more, it's way more subtle than that, that God has actually been with us all along in the midst of the anomalies, in the midst of the unorder and disorder. So there's always potential for things to go good or bad, but it doesn't mean that God caused it. That little thought itself um, is the bedrock of how I'm able to continue to be a Christian and to be a Jesus follower. Because without that, if God needed for my kid to die, I just don't think it's very good God behavior. I mean, right. I, I mean, anybody can do that. Anybody can require someone to die in order, you know, to get to something. Mm. I think, I think consent and love and grace and mercy are, are much more powerful than that. So all of this thinking, the truth is, I don't say this in every interview, and I don't really say it in the book, but the truth is the death of my daughter really wrote every word of this book because it's mm. me trying to figure out what I think the healthiest, not that I have it figured out, but what I think the healthiest approach with grief and, and evil and death and all these things are. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, last question, you know, I was thinking about uh, the audience, and again, you know, I'm not really sure the complete spread of, you know, I'm progressive all the way versus like, hey, I'm kind of in between or I have questions, yeah. but we, we, we try and frame the podcast in a way of introducing people to different rooms of the Christian tradition that maybe they haven't been exposed to. Right. And this is, this is one of yeah. those examples, but we're talking yeah. about things that are just like for me as an evangelical, my whole life really foreign to me. What would you say to someone who's listening and they're like, you know, hey, you know, Jonathan, I hear you, but there's these Bible verses that I think are pretty clear about, you know, like substitution and, and punishment and judgment. You know, I mean, I'm not asking you to give a, a deep dive and unpack that. I'm just saying there could be people who, um, the best way I've explained it to myself is, is, is despite what I want to believe, there's still sometimes small voices in the back of my head saying, but the Bible says this, you know, kind of thing. How would you recommend or um, what's your advice to folks in those spaces who are like, I'm really attracted to this. I love the concept, but also like these Bible verses that I've been kind of taught since day one are just shouting now and I, I don't know how to navigate this. What's the next step for someone like that when it comes to your book and this kind of work? Yeah, I have a lot of compassion for those folks. Um, and the truth is I am one of those folks. Yeah. Uh, I have I have been more intensely in the past than I am now. The more I dive into these two respective things we've talked about today, the more I see that they're, I actually think they're more biblical than the way that I was raised. Mm. So I, so, but first I want to have compassion on folks and say, um, I hope you just give yourself grace and space. I, I don't think there's necessarily a rush. Now, if you go through a massive trauma uh, that's unexpected, like I have, well, you, you know, you'll be on a whole different plane of existence anyhow, but I think give yourself space and grace and just uh, be slow. I, you know, I think one thing I'm super convinced is that love is patient. That seems like a pretty biblical thing mm. to, um, to rely upon. So, and love is, love is patient with you. And if something you're doing is working, uh, for the most part, 
this is hard for me to say, but I think it's probably true. Go ahead and just keep doing it. Mm. It'll work until it doesn't work. Mm. And then when it doesn't work, um, just know that there are a whole other worldviews that people have been thinking about for a very, very long time. Right. Those of us who grew up evangelical, we, we have been, I don't want to say brainwashed. I want to be respectful, but th- that is kind of true. We've been brainwashed. We've been conditioned to think that our way of the gospel is the way it's always been. It's not true. It's the way it's been for the last couple hundred years here in America. Right. But some of these things that we've talked about, whether it's imitation or conflict or desire or open and relational thinking, They've literally been around for millennia, um, but the evangelicals told us we couldn't think this way. Yeah. So have strength, um, be courageous, but be patient with yourself. And also, but also just know, as far as I'm concerned, and a bunch of people that live in these worlds, it's actually a more biblical way to read it. Um, and there are, there are, the last thing I would say is there are a lot of Bible verses I've had to work through personally, just like you're talking about. I would read something and be like, oh, but the Bible says... But then when I would go look at the verse and begin to unpack it, I would see, oh, that makes sense within mm. a mimetic theory worldview or, or an open rational worldview. So I'm not suggesting do away with the Bible. Um, it might actually be a more healthy way to read it. Love that. The book is A Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. The book is out now. Uh, Jonathan Foster, really great having you on the podcast. Thank I mean, you. this was... This was simultaneously, I feel like, really personal, but also really like academic in a lot of ways. So great to kind of have that combination. Uh, where can folks find you? Are you online? Do you have social media spaces, et cetera? Plug away. That's right. JonathanFosterOnline.com is the best way to just um, stay up to date with what I'm doing. You can sign up for the newsletter there. I also podcast at Jonathan underscore Foster because all the cool names were taken like me. <laughs> Like new evangelicals and so stuff. Cool. You know? So cool. So I was just like, forget it, man. Jonathan <laughs> underscore Foster. Um, you know, and I'm on Patreon and a few. I'm terrible at social media. I try, but I'm not very good at it. So just find me on the website, jonathanfosteronline.com. Cool. Well, Jonathan, great having you on the podcast. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Tim. Appreciate it. 